This episode is not sponsored, but I'd like to talk about the Anti-Slavery Collective. There are more enslaved people today than at any other point in history, and at any one time, someone is being trafficked within a mile of where you live. We often associate slavery with chains and shackles, but modern slavery is a hidden crime that is hard to detect. The Anti-Slavery Collective is an independent collective fighting against the global epidemic of modern slavery by raising awareness, convening changemakers and highlighting the amazing work of the movement. The Anti-Slavery Collective's mission is to raise awareness for modern slavery as a global epidemic. They encourage law enforcement agencies, policymakers, journalists, academics, NGOs, companies, individuals and survivors to collaborate and share ideas on how we can fight human trafficking. There are currently 40.3 million victims of modern slavery in the world. It's a global crime that requires a global response. William Wilberforce once said, You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. You can call me Jenny, and my fear is losing my identity. Hello, and welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. The identity of my guest this week will be kept secret in order to protect her and her family. For this purpose, I will be calling my guest Jenny throughout this episode. Jenny grew up in the Northwest. Her dad left when she was small, and her mum, who is of Southeast Asian descent, raised Jenny and her two sisters. At 13, Jenny was groomed and trafficked by her neighbour. This abuse carried on until she was 23 when she finally managed to escape and get help. The Salvation Army found her a safe house where she received aftercare and support. Knowing that there's much more needed to be done for victims of trafficking, she went and qualified as a social worker and is about to study at a UK university specialising in modern slavery. Jenny says she is grateful to be alive and is now grabbing all of life's opportunities. She is passionate about elephants, Thailand, loves cooking and can speak several languages. She loves art and writes poetry in order to lift others up. Hello Jenny. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself and talking with me today. It's been so lovely to get to know you over these past weeks on the phone and on email and I'm just truly grateful that you're here telling us your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're in another lockdown. Another one. Um, Are you able to work from home in this lockdown and do you have to use a a different name professionally? Yes, so um, I'm working from both the office and home and for work I use my real name um, and yeah unfortunately this kind of work is growing so we need to be in the office and pretty much all the time and because of the impact that the pandemic's having on the families that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And can you explain what you're actually doing right now? 
Yeah, so um, I work as a social worker in child in children's services, and um, so that is the frontline service and um, dealing with safeguarding, child protection, and um, I'm working with with families across the south east of England. And Jenny, if we just go back to when you were younger, in the area that you you grew up in, it was quite segregated when you lived there. Can you tell us a bit more about that time growing up? Um, yeah, so I was raised in um, the um, northwest of England and the area that I lived in was um, segregated in terms of race. Um, so there was um, a lot of conflict um, in the area um, and that led to um, it being quite isolated and um, you wasn't people there wasn't a lot of diversity how did you find your time at school so I loved um primary school and I loved learning and I wish and that I paid more attention to it now and I don't really think that you really appreciate school until you leave and however I I would describe secondary school as more of a sanctuary and an escape and I remember being quite shy and desperate to fit in in the earlier years of secondary school and then by the end um, I was someone who just wanted to be seen and was so desperate to fit in um, and to be someone or something at school Um, and I wish I could go back and tell my younger self that that I was worth something and um, I wish I had the courage to speak to the teachers and and adults around me and so that the signs were not missed. And with your with your mum, she was a single mum. Was that difficult in your childhood to keep things going for her and to support to support you and your sisters alone? So my mum had um, three of us, and um, growing up there were um, tough times. She was working a lot and was trying to kind of keep us together and keep keep a roof over our head. Um, so there was a lot of difficulties. My mum. First language wasn't English either, um, so she, yeah, she she um, struggled to to kind of make ends meet. You spoke um, just now about that lack of worth at school. Where do you think that came from? There's always a pressure to to be um, at school, especially to to have certain things and to to be good enough to be the cool kid um, and. Um, if you're not from a family that's able to kind of, you know, provide you with those luxuries, um, you can often feel that you're not, you know, you're never going to fit in and you're never going to have the right things um, to be in that group or to have, you know, the latest gadgets or the latest items of clothing. Um, and a lot of um, your status or your identity is based on on those things. And Jenny, you became trapped in a truly awful situation. What can you tell us about what happened then? Um, so I met, uh, there was a neighbour who befriended me um, mm-hmm. and that's where the ordeal began. And I was around 13 years old um, and this neighbour had then introduced me to a number of of um, older men um, ranging from sort of their 30s, 40s, all the way to and their 60s and 70s um, and the the initial neighbour that had befriended me um, had then exchanged um, 
exchanged an agreement and there was financial exchanges where he would then pass me to these men and um, it was expected that there would be sexual favours and and sexual acts and and they had um, transported me in and around across the UK so from Greater Manchester to um, different counties in the UK and then they would pass you on to a different group of men and that transportation was often at sort of petrol stations where you would get into um, a car and they would then um, expect you to do um, meet a different group of men and have sex and then you was passed on to a different car um, it started off um, just by the neighbour befriending me and ended up with me being passed around to sort of different groups of men. Um, and that had continued for on and off for around until I was rescued by the Salvation Army. And when your neighbour started approaching you, did this, were your, were your family unaware of what was going on? Yeah, so the way that they um, operated was so clever um, and it just started off by um, by just a neighbour befriending um, an elderly neighbour who, you know, you sort of think, oh, he's just being a nice neighbour. Um, but he would offer um, sort of bus fare to get to school or sometimes um, offer different things. Um, and my family were... Um, you know, my mum was busy working and my sisters were doing their own thing at the time. And they did um, become aware, but by that point, sort of, yeah, um, it was too late. Mm. And did you understand at such a young age what was going on because you were so young at, at 13? I always knew that what was happening was wrong, but at 13, it was just believed that if I would say something or or speak out, that it would be my fault um, because I'd accepted um, bus fare or I'd accepted a new bag. Um, and it got to a point where when I knew that it was wrong, um, I was too fearful to speak out. Um, the times that I tried to um, would often result in some of yeah some horrible things happening. And was there a place you went to in your mind to escape what was happening to you? Um I think I became numb. So as part of the ordeal, they would do some horrendous things and they burnt me and they doused me in petrol, broke parts of my, my face, and shaved some of my hair off. And there was a lot of violence. And I think at the time I became numb and didn't feel or didn't, I just thought this was going to be it. And the next time, I wouldn't make it through. Um, I would often just think of a clock and and hope that okay, in an hour or two hours, this this will be over, and um, just yeah, try and race against time. And this might be quite a strange question, but were there times when, in all this awfulness that was going on, was there times when they were when they were nice to you and friendly to you? Um, I think initially, so with the neighbour, um, uh, you know, I, I, th- I saw that niceness as, oh, someone's being nice. and um, um, But I wouldn't say they were nice. I think in my mind, if they hadn't beaten me or hurt me um, as much as the as much as the, the first time or the second time, I think, oh, they were, they were being nice. If they 
helped me sort of um, get get back to the place that I was living, I would I would class them that as being as them being nice because I'm not walking in the rain or um, you know if they didn't um, use violence um, or, or I didn't come back with <laughs> injured, I would think that they they would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, so it wasn't like every time that they would beat me or threaten me um, or um, if, if there was a day where that wasn't happening and it was just, can you do this and this is what's expected of you, then I would think that they they would be nice. Mm. I think um, looking back, I, I was conditioned to kind of believe that this was just just what happened and it was fate and I was born into this and... Um, you know, that good things happen to others. And um, in that state of trauma, I then accepted that that was going to happen. And um, I began to kind of fear it not happening. So in a sense, I began to fear freedom. You said to me that it took a very long time for you to be able to get help, 10 years in total. Why was that? It took so long because I think there were so many, uh, there's so many sort of, gaps um in support and so many um at that time there was such a lack of an awareness of what what was going on um I didn't often fit the criteria so before getting rescued um I was placed in different um refuges or different organizations and I never fit that criteria because no one really sort of understood what was going on um or there was an expectation of you um to be um, a certain a certain place, or so for example, um, having one perpetrator and not not a group, um, so you were seen as uh, perceived to be a risk or uh, a risk to the other tenants that were in the place. And um, for me, the Salvation Army played a massive role in my rescue. Um, I never knew what was happening. Um, was called trafficking until I met the Salvation Army. And I never knew about the Salvation Army before my rescue. I just thought that they were people that just played instruments and came out at Christmas and that they they provided me with the care and support that I needed. Um, and I know that from the one call um, to the call that was made um, following the incident where um, there was petrol doused and um, I wasn't in a great place it just took them two hours to come and get me and take me to a safe house and um, and I remember thinking that that was going to be another trick and um, it's going to be another place where I'd be re-trafficked or hurt and um, and instead it was the place um, that yeah was where my um, freedom freedom began and um, I would say that the work rescued was was the act that they did when they picked me up um, but what they planted in me was the journey to freedom and that's the journey that I'm still on now. That's so powerful the way you said that um, and how, where were you rescued? How did that happen? There was a lot of places that had um, the hospital, a lot of the agencies were not kind of sure where to go with this and um, it was an organisation called Victim Support that recognised this as as um, trafficking and said that you know we we know of a 
um, organization called the Salvation Army that could could help you. And I'd heard this so many times that I thought, oh, you know, this is just going to be another place where you go in for 10 to 12 days and eventually they're going to say, sorry, you need to move on. Or um, And um, it started with um, a phone call made to the Salvation Army. And from that phone call, um, literally within two hours, they had sent um, a team of volunteers um, to to come and get me and said, okay, we're going to take you to a safe place. Um, and I stayed there for a period of 45 days. Um, and that is when the national referral, um, you're entered into the national referral mechanism um, and they look at your case and um, make a decision as to whether or not you have been a, um, a victim of, of modern slavery. Um, I think... You know the the Salvation Army, um, they they've empowered me, and even to this day, um, you know, forty five uh, beyond the forty five days, um, and I think they've extended that time now, and um, they've just yeah stood by my side, and there's they've helped me get into work, and they've they've been with me through the darkest times, and the safe houses um house the the one that i was in they housed women and children as well but you were in safe houses weren't you that weren't safe yeah yeah um so i i was moving around from um different places um and some of the safe houses prior to this um salvation army were um they were poorly run and Often you'd find yourself in vulnerable situations in those safe houses where it almost became another fight for survival. So, you know, not being safe, your items. And I remember, you know, there there would often be fights. There would often be people that would have substance misuse issues. And um, it just felt like such an unsafe place um, to the point where, you know, even makeup or you couldn't leave toothpaste out without it being stolen and I was the youngest in the safe house um prior to the Salvation Army and so often you know people would ask you to to do things that you didn't want to do like you know um will you try and steal this or will you hold and they would misusing substances will you hold that and and that would often jeopardize your tenancy or they would ask you to get involved with the things that they were doing so would you go to a safe house and then would you go back to the traffickers and then go back to another safe house? Is that how it worked? And then finally you were rescued and were put into the final safe house. Yeah, so the, the, the safe house, sometimes I was put in there whilst there was a police investigation. and um, I was put into a safe house that was run for women who... Um, were subjected to domestic abuse and when the caseworker looked at my um, my situation she said sorry you're going to have to leave because this service isn't for you um, and at that point rather than moving again and going somewhere I would often end up back um, back to the traffickers. And is that because they found you again or would you go back to them? I think um a bit of both. So when there was threats made towards my family, when they um, had, you know, um, posted things in the, um, the letterbox, and um, I was fearful for 
my family and their lives. And so I would go back of my own accord. And then there was a final moment, wasn't there, in the in the petrol station? Was that did that feel like the final chapter of of that experience? Um, yes. So the I think the final moment was when the police had said that the next time that they would find me, um, I would maybe in a body bag and. The final incident um, before I was rescued happened in the August. Um, and, uh, yeah, they um, they had asked me to do um, sexual favours and, and every time that I showed any resistance, um, it would often result in them beating. And there was a time when they had, um, they had thrown me out of the car and without any clothes on on the motorway um, and following that they then um, doused me in, in petrol and tried to set me alight and in that moment I thought that this was going to be it and I was going to die and in a sense even though I was really scared I was also relieved that I'm not going to no longer be subjected to this um, luckily um, I didn't die and I was found and, and taken to a hospital um, and when I was discharged, it was at that point where I knew that if I stayed in the area that I was in um, and there was, you know, um, the traffickers in there, that I was going to be, I wasn't going to, the next time I wouldn't be lucky and make it. Um, and that's when the Salvation Army had stepped in. And, and ever since, um, yeah. Mm. And Jenny, you have a fear of being incontinent for the rest of your life as a result of this horrendous experience why why is this um so as a result of my experiences um, I underwent a lot of medical procedures to repair the physical damage and had various surgeries on my face and on different parts of my body um I had to have um surgery I don't know do us sorry this isn't, is it down below? I don't know what I can say. Yeah, no, you can say anything. <laughs> okay. Say anything. So I had to have surgery um, in certain parts of my areas where there was, um, where I was injured. And the traffickers would, would um, they inserted a sharp glass bottle in that area. Um, and as a result of that, um, I was left incontinent. And I think um, as a woman, and even to this day, um, my biggest fear was to have was to live with this for the rest of my life, and I feared losing um, my dignity or the or what I thought was left of that. Um, and it was also a daily reminder of what what happened, what had happened, um, and you know I had to kind of live my life trying not to like planning. Um, when I would go to work, would I have an accident? And um, I didn't have any sensation of when I needed to, to go. And, um, you know, the doctors would just say, well, it, the, the way that you can move forward is to manage this. Um, and I just think as women, you know, we, um, like, choosing what to wear so that it wouldn't be obvious or having not having access to change if I did have an accident. Um, and that was a really dark place and, um, you know, I, I still struggle with that, but I had two choices and 
One was that it was going to rule me, or the second was that I was going to manage this as best as I can. And luckily, I had amazing people such as Salvation Army and my counsellor and Isabel, Jules, Eugenie, and they they really. Sorry, can I say their names or not? Yeah, definitely. Sorry. Definitely. No, so, please, um, sorry. Of course you can. Yeah, and they helped lift it up my spirit. And um, I was in the hospital kind of for over five months and they were the ones that were, you know, and my family as well, giving me support and saying, you know, you can do this. Um, and that's something that I feel really lucky about, but I also feel really passionate about is that there are so many gaps in the services offered to survivors in the aftercare um so there's not always that aftercare whether it's for mental health or or physical health Mm -hmm. um there there are huge gaps in the system for that and and from talking to you and learning more about charities like the anti-slavery collective it seems that people are unaware that human trafficking goes on under our noses and that's why I'm so happy you, you're here sharing your story so people listening can be more aware. But how how can we be more aware and what what are the signs to look out for? Yeah, so um, it happens here in the UK. Um, often people think it happens abroad and, um, you know, it doesn't happen in this country. Um, it happens on your doorstep. It happens in, the, in our neighbourhoods and no one's too far removed from it um it happened to me and I, I live in the UK um and so I think we all need to make sure that we're not contributing to it um some of the some of the like places it happens are like car washes um nail bars the food that we're buying the clothes that we're wearing um and you know if, if it doesn't feel right um you know whether it's people working long hours or you go to a car wash and you think something isn't right here um you know there's just there's there's now an app that you can even download to report it there's the modern slavery helpline and there's organizations such as the salvation army and the anti-slavery collective that you know are, are talking about this and um, so it's i would also say that it's you know really important to that there's never a wrong you can yeah, if you're worried or mm. you, you suspect something, is just report it. It might not be, but then you've been a voice for those in case it was. Mm. Because before getting to know you, Jenny, and learning about these charities, I was pretty ignorant about what what can happen in the UK and on our doorstep. Um, and so it's just really important that we are more aware, um, you know, going into a nail bar or those places that you just said is really important. And do you feel like justice has been done to the people who did this to you? I think we can't hide away that this justice system is flawed. And especially with modern slavery, a lot of the focus is still on the perpetrators and there's, you know, victim blaming, there's so many complex complexities. Um, and I think the justice, justice system feeds into the idea um, of, of that. Um, for me personally, I I've created my own sense of justice, um, and you know some some of the perpetrators have been to prison, and um, some haven't. Um, and I think creating your own sense of justice um, for me means striving and achieving things um, that were 
stripped away. Um, so that's still having my dreams and my visions and working on those um, and not and not allowing everything to be taken from me. So, you know, I might not get, I might not have got each and every person that's perpetrated something against me locked, locked away, um, locked up locked away or in prison mm-hmm. um, but I yeah I still have my dreams and that's something that um, has helped me create my own sense of justice and um, I think that the justice system needs to be revisited and, and looked at because so many of the people that I know that have also survived modern slavery haven't been given their justice or if they you know even if someone goes to um, that the, the, the traffickers are locked up and um, or sent to prison, mm-hmm. there's so many injustices in the system after they've been rescued. So access to housing, access to um, support, you know, seeking employment. There's still a fight that they're facing. And. And what you you were saying earlier about, you know, that you do have these aspirations and you have these dreams and that's one of the ways that you you have seen justice for yourself is is finding your identity, which brings me on to the your fear of losing your identity. Can you talk a bit about those feelings around this fear? So I think when people um often think of a victim, um, you know, there's um, there's so many limitations placed on that at times, and people may expect us to behave in a some way, uh, in a way of someone that's always traumatized, that's unable to have visions, unable to to work. And um, you know, often people want to hear hear the story, and 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 that's where they they're stopped. And there's this perception of of a victim that's not going to be able to achieve certain things because of what they've been through. So they're limited. Um, and I I think, you know, I, I question is who am I journey who has been trafficked? Um, and is that going to define me and my experiences and who I was before that or who I can become after that? And that's something that I struggle with um, and also struggle to, to um, when other people see me, do they see me as Jenny, the victim or Jenny who has been trafficked? Um, or will they see the woman behind that? And when people say that you are a survivor, which you are a survivor, is that word survivor, do you find that empowering or does it somehow add to that fear of losing your identity? I think, um, you know, being a survivor um, it, it is a term that can be celebrated. And um, we all survive things. And I think I've lived through an ordeal where I've survived some of my biggest fears. Um, but I don't think that the word survivor, you know, I think it's it's um, a a title that, that we all have and some people may survive an illness, some people may survive different different things. And we, I think, or survivors of modern slavery um, have means that you've gone through much more than what life usually throws at people. Um before being survivors, we were also people who had dreams for the future and who even had, you know, professions or when we found ourselves on this journey of being trafficked, we survived it. Um, 
but we're also still surviving the aftermath of that. Mm. Um, and sometimes we're not always able to express or celebrate our freedom after yeah. exiting the system. You wrote a beautiful piece about identity as a survivor of human trafficking, saying that these people who have experienced this abuse also have dreams and they have passions far beyond this experience. And I know it's really important for you not to just reflect on the past, but also to look to the future. And perhaps this is a way of survival for all humans to not reflect too much or be fearful of our past. Um, And from your point of view, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to to look forward and and if as I think writing poetry and art as well has helped because for so long um, I wasn't able to make sense of what I was feeling. And I think by, um, you know, painting or, or poetry, by doing that, I'm able to express um, how I'm feeling and not be limited by um, the things that have happened in the past. And did it take time after you were saved to feel that sense of freedom? Yeah, and I think as a yeah, I think freedom is a journey, and um, you know, often people think, oh, okay, you've gone from victim to survivor because you've been rescued, and so therefore your ordeal's over. Um, And I think it was only at the point of being um, rescued and and starting, um, you know, at the safe house or with the Salvation Army that I started to feel again and started to learn about relationships and and um, you know not thinking that the whole world is is against you and that these people want to hurt you but yeah learning to trust and learning to feel free and and not being fearful of that freedom that you know making decisions um, I was never able to kind of make decisions and having the option of choosing food at a menu off a menu mm. um like even to this day I'm like oh someone just make the decision for me um, and and learning to accept um yeah learning to accept to say no I don't want that or putting boundaries in place um it's all a journey and it feels now that you um as you say, you are really grabbing life and grabbing those opportunities. And depending on lockdown, you're about to go to a new city and study. Can you tell us about that and what your future aspirations are? Yeah, so there's so much um, that we hear about modern slavery and there's so much more to learn. Um, and I think that um, I'm going there to, um, you know, have a survivor input in that so that the people that are making the policies around modern slavery um you know, hear from survivors themselves and make sure that we have a voice in that and and hear about the kind of the authentic experiences rather than to speak for us, to speak with us. Mm. Um, I'd love to set my own charity up one day, write a book and help with, um, help with aftercare. And I think the biggest aspiration I have is to to fight for those who were in my situation and may not yet be rescued because um, there's still so many people trapped in in slavery, not, you know, just um, sex trafficking, but in, in labour, exploitation and different, different forms of slavery around the world. Um, so I would love to continue um, and, and stand with people that are already doing that, um, mm. like the charities that we spoke about, 
in solidarity to, to help the people that are still in that situation. Because what's the biggest problem in, you know, what is that gap in aftercare? I think with the we're currently um, in the UK, um, I can only sort of speak for the UK, is that the, the survivors are only afforded um, some time in, um, in the NRN. And once they leave, you know, that it's relearning, it's relearning how to live life um, where you're not under control. And um, in my situation, that was, you know, surgery and um, medical issues. Some survivors have, um, you know, they, they've not had the um, experience of working or, or getting qualifications, so they then can't work. And it's, um, you know, a lot of one of, um, some of the aftercare that I, or the aftercare provision that I was in, um, had closed down because of funding. Um, you know, and there's just not enough out there to to support survivors integrating back into the community again. And Jenny, we're coming towards the end, um, but I'd love to talk about to you about your passions and more about these these aspirations. Um, you say that you, well, I know that you do because I've seen some of it, but you love writing. You love writing poetry to lift people up. So if you have a bad day, what motivates you and what lifts you up? Um, I think journaling, painting, um, listening to music, elephants, and um, thinking of places that, you know, just made me feel happy. And I'm surrounding myself with, with people that that, you know, and um, lift each other up so um, yeah. mm. and elephants I love elephants too I think they're like uh, people their faces have got so much character where did your love from, for elephants come from uh, I just yeah I love elephants I think that they're the most um, beautiful creatures ever and um, I lived in Thailand um, for some um, for some years and I there is a Thai term called um, Pajan, and that literally means um, breaking the elephant's spirit to make them submissive to their owners. So baby elephants are taken away from, from their mothers and, um, you know, for years they're chained. Um, and they don't realise their own strength um, as they grow um, because they're so conditioned to believe that, um, you know, that they're conditioned to believe that they're going to be chained for the rest of their life. Um, and I think I saw myself in that, you know, no matter um, who tries to crush your spirit, um, once they were, once the elephants are rescued, they just love life again and they rejoice and play. And um, so I think that's where my elephants, mm. uh, love for elephants stem from. Yeah, that's so lovely, Jenny. By the way, I think you one day could if you wanted to could write the most beautiful book just saying <laughs> just putting it <laughs> out there <laughs> um and what's the place you go to when you're feeling fearful and that could be your imagination or a literal place i would say it was um on a beach um in thailand <laughs> coconuts <laughs> um and yeah, just I think the ocean as well. And um, there's something so beautiful and refreshing and healing about um, being near the ocean. Mm. And what's the song 
or piece of music that you turn to when you're feeling fearful? I know you love Beyonce, so I'm expecting you to say Beyonce, but it might be something else. Yes, no, it is. I love all kinds of music from classical to Bollywood, but Beyonce, I just, I love her. I love the fact that she's got um, her sort of Sasha Fierce side. And I think we all have that in our Beyonce in us too. Um, I love yeah. dancing and singing and um, the favourite song, my favourite song of hers is a song called um, I Was Here. And yeah, it just talks, um, you know, she sings about leaving our mark. And I think um, we can all do that for um, survivors of modern slavery and this issue. And um, just standing together and leaving our mark in the world. Mm, definitely, definitely. She's, uh, I've been watching her. Beyonce's documentary I know that it was actually out ages ago so I'm a bit late to the party <laughs> but it was on TV the other day and I was watching it and I thought wow she's um to watch her perform she's pretty amazing and pretty fierce <laughs> um but good good song choice and what would you do if you were not afraid um I would have used my real name today and I wouldn't I would not be fearful of the kind of retributions of what's happened. Um, I wouldn't be fearful of the labels that society put put on us because of the um, experiences. And I would just dream more and not be afraid of um, things um, that I think the misplaced fear that, you know, I'm thinking that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to achieve certain things because of what's happened. Um, and I wouldn't also be fearful for my family. Jenny, I am so, so grateful for you coming on to Fear Itself. Thank you so, so much. And I'm so, so happy that I've met you. And I hope we can, I hope we can stay in touch. And I hope I get to meet you in person one day and not just speak over the phone and on the computer. But um, thank you. This is this has been wonderful and you speak so so well thank you for having me if anyone listening has been affected by anything discussed in this conversation or suspects anything suspicious please contact the modern slavery helpline unseen at www.unseenuk.org or call free of charge 08000121700 Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself, and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.